Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. Today I am with Sahaj Sharda. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And you've got a book coming up called The College Cartel, and it's got a really intriguing subtitle as well. And so without me doing a long introduction, I just thought maybe I'd have you do the introduction. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and then why you wrote this book? Sure, happy that. So first of all, I just want to say thanks for having me on, Tim. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, so as you briefly mentioned, my name is Sahaj Sharda. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Northern Virginia. Um, you know, I was, I was born into an immigrant family where the value of education was something that was always stressed. It was a big thematic element of my youth, um, and it was a big thematic element of my family. Uh, my grandfather was the first in our family to go to college. He went on to then go and get a master's. He got a PhD. And so he sort of set the tone for all subsequent generations when it came to the standards that we held ourselves to um, in, you know, academic settings. And, you know, one of the things that I always think about is when my grandfather came and visited me when I was a student at Georgetown. And he's walking around the campus and you could see in his eyes, like this was his dream. He wished, you know, his family could afford to send him to an elite American university um, to walk through those types of hallowed halls um, and be surrounded in that type of environment. Um, but what was also interesting about that trip was how familiar uh, a place like Georgetown was to someone like my grandfather. In other words, I mean, this is someone who was born in 1938 um, who went, you know, through his primary and secondary schooling, um, you know, before the sixties, certainly. Um, and, uh, yet if you think about the pedagogical methods that he's familiar with exams, lecture halls, um, you know, homework, uh, pen and paper, um, writing, uh, you know, and, and these, all of these tools, classrooms that we use to teach there's been very little change in education over the last 200 years. And so in some sense, it was really nice to see that my grandfather felt at home at Georgetown. In another sense, it was an alarm bell for our society that nothing is changing when it comes to how we teach our students. Um, and I think that should be something that everyone's concerned about. You know, in any other industry, things are supposed to get better and different over time. Computers are supposed to get smaller and faster. Um, you know, cars are supposed to get cheaper and, uh, you know, more environmentally friendly. Um, but when it comes to education, we've sort of decided that stagnation is okay. Um, and because I think that we take that approach, we end up uh, creating all sorts of really, in my view, destructive policies uh, that end up disempowering students uh, and hurting America. Uh, in our ability to meet the moment. Um, and I think the thing that we need to talk a little bit more about, um, and so that's one of the things that really motivated me to start researching, um, you know, what exactly is going on in the college market? Um, start with the list of questions. Why is student debt here so high when it is in other places? Um, why is tuition inflation so high? Um, you know, the general questions that anyone ought to start with. So, as I did more and more research, um, there was a sub-question that increasingly became of vital importance to me intellectually. And that was, why are elite colleges, A, so stagnant, like I mentioned with that anecdote, but B, 
why are they so expensive? Hmm. Uh, why aren't they changing? Why aren't they enrolling more students? What is going on on these campuses where they're sort of frozen in time? And that ended up becoming what this book is all about. The title of the book is The College Cartel. And it's about how elite colleges collude, uh, monopolize, and you know engage in all sorts of predatory behavior, which ends up being detrimental both to students and, in my view, to the institutions themselves. Okay. I think that's a brilliant summary of what a lot of the problems are. Uh, I'll just give a little bit of my own background in this sort of topic. Um, I, I just always loved college. I went to college a long time ago in 1986. I triple majored. I had a major in mathematics, literature, and writing. And I really bought into the whole concept of what uh, a lot of people would call the liberal arts purpose of college. And then later, I sort of found out that there were kind of three purposes of college that people would state. And one was liberal arts, which was to get a well-rounded education. Then the second one was return on investment. I'm going to college to get a good job so that I can, I don't know, invest in mutual funds and make a lot of money. And then the third one was like the uh, sometimes not well-defined college experience, which I think for mm -hmm. a lot of people just means go to parties and drink beer. So, you know, right. it was like those type of things. Well, then I actually started teaching college in 1990 at the age of 22. And I taught 11 different kinds of English classes over about a 20-year period, mostly at UMKC, but also at a few other places as well. And look, I, I agree with you that we just have not changed how we teach, how we deliver information in at least 100 years I did a little reading, a little research on this, and uh, supposedly we've always sort of split between like a traditional approach and a progressive approach, but really in all honesty, nothing changes all that much. There's a lot of lecture. There's not necessarily a lot of hands-on. There's not a lot of, um, I don't know, placement in a work environment where people are making or doing something practical for other people. Um, there's a lot of um, courses that don't necessarily lean anywhere. Uh, I, I hate to dog on, on some of these things, but they're just simply not going to lead to a job. Um, I mean, sometimes some of the best majors are things like philosophy, theology, women's studies, psychology, sociology, but it's so expensive and it just doesn't necessarily lead to a job. Um, I'll just toss a little spoiler alert. I, I think if you're going to major in one of those things, you should double major. And then the other major ought to be practical and lead to a job. But, but I think you're doing just a great job of stepping back even further than what I was thinking. And you're really kind of looking at the big picture. So um, you sent me a list of several topics that we could kind of delve into, subtopics. Do you want to start? Do you want to start with some of those? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Okay. But um, if, I could, if I could just um, sort of riff on, on what you just said. Please do. Right now. So I think it's interesting when you talk about, you know, what is what is the purpose of colleges and universities? And you sort of listed, you know, the three, mm -hmm. um, some combination of partying, finding a job and a liberal arts or, you know, well-roundedness, community right. citizen type of theory. Um, I think what's really interesting, though, is when we t when we like specifically zoom in on the ROI function, on the finding a job function, um, it's not so clear how exactly that happens, right? It's not clear if you're able to find a job in the job market because you learned so much at a university that it made you 
so much more capable in the relevant skills that you're then going to apply in the workforce. Or, and this, you know, is, is, is becoming increasingly my view, that it just provides you with a credible signal that helps you market yourself to employers. Um, and if it's the second and not the first, then I think we need to do a really deep rethink on how many people really ought to be going to get a four-year degree. Because if it's just signaling, I mean, that's inherently zero sum. Um, I'm able to signal something because you're not on, right? Gucci's worth something because not everyone can have one. So if, if that, if that's what we're trying to do, there must be cheaper ways like zero sum procedures and signaling. And this incredibly trillion dollar market that we've uh, established that, I mean, in its current state will require significant government bailouts every decade or so. I love that. And another way of phrasing that that I've heard that I really like is that, you know, oftentimes we are giving people the credential, you know, but we are not giving people the education. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we have this diploma and it says, hey, I graduated from Harvard. And so therefore, I'm a special individual. I think the thing a lot of students don't really realize is, is that I think if you go to a place like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, something like that, okay, you probably have a pretty good credential and that's going to open doors for you. But how many colleges are there like that? I I looked it up one time and I think that there are 5,031 colleges and universities in the United States. You know, you just simply can't tell me that more than about 20, 25 of those are extra special and people say, oh, Harvard, you are an amazing individual. I I think by the time you get to number 26 through number 5,000, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been a teacher for 30 years and I think I've had one student ask me where I went to college. People just and and adults, I've had zero adults ask me, Mm -hmm. where did you go to college? When I applied for jobs, nobody asked me that question. I, I think it's turning into a maybe an empty credential. And that really bothers me. Yeah, It just bothers so, me. I, I completely agree with you. And and that's sort of going back to this like zero sum aspect, right? I mean, if everyone starts going to college and again, I would never be one to say people shouldn't go. If you, if you have, you know, if you want to go, if you want to pursue an education, I think people should go. Unfortunately though, I feel a lot of people feel pressured to go. Agreed. It's not really of their own volition. It's some sort of arms race. Um, and in that sort of world, I just, you know, I would say that we're doing everyone a disservice, both the students and the institutions. Agree 100%. Uh, it just, it really bothers me, the whole arms race aspect, because then an 18-year-old signs up for college, ends up with a ginormous student loan debt, and right. they really had no right. idea what they're getting into. Because if you ask the average mm-hmm. 18-year-old, they probably get told by somebody in my age bracket, oh, hey, just go to college. It doesn't matter if you rack up a big debt, you'll pay that off. That'll be fine. Except mm-hmm. the problem is I know people who have literally been working on their debts for 20 years or longer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I just think that's just ridiculous. You put people in these these horrible burdened situations and th- they didn't know they were 18. They just they were trusting the people older than them. So I just right. don't think that's good. I mean, and, and I would even, you know, take it one step further. What then happens is because we're doing it at such a mass, you know, sort of civilizational scale. Um, and when this debt problem starts to get bigger and bigger, there will always be political pressure on the president um, to sign this type of uh, executive order to write off a lot of these debts. 
the issue is unless you do something to reform the system that's creating the debts in the first place, you're just going to have the exact same problem in 10 years. Absolutely. Um, I don't know who will be in the White House, but I do know that the debt problem will be uh, equivalently bad in 10 years unless we do something to fix the root system that's creating the debt. So we've changed nothing. We just wrote off what's already happened. But we haven't changed the, the engine that's creating it. You know, you're absolutely right. And to me, I guess, like in the credit card industry, they have a similar thing. I'm going to make an analogy, and it's called reloading. It's where somebody takes their nine credit cards that are all maxed out, then they consolidate that all into one big loan, and they put that, say, on their house, for example. But the problem is nobody changed their original habits, so then they just reload up all nine credit cards. And then at the last stage, their debt's like twice as big as it was before. You know, Or I think it's like a guy who gets... Uh, I don't know, uh, what's it called? Gastrointestinal bypass surgery. You know, he was 300 pounds. Now we cut him down to like 180 pounds. And then he's like, bring on the Twinkies, man. (laughs) Just winds up right back where he starts. So I. That's a good, that's a really good analogy. I'm going to start using that one. (laughs) Steal freely. You know, some people call it quoting, other people call it plagiarism. I don't really care. So, yeah, I think you're right. So then what do the colleges get out of this? I mean, we, we have like these students coming, they rack up these big debts. What do the colleges get out of this? Yeah, you know, it's obviously something I've been thinking a lot, about a lot because, um, you know, the the common view or the traditional view on the universities is that there's some sort of charity, nonprofit institution. Um, and I mean, this has been, you know, historically going back a lot. This has been like the the consensus view. It's written into a tax code, so the schools get all the sorts of tax exemptions because we treat them as if they are charities or nonprofits. Um, their accounting is such that they can't pay out dividends, so it's not like an actual. It's legally not organized as a corporation. But I think that there is a form of profit maximization that's happening at the schools, and it's a little bit subtle, okay. especially at the elite schools, where I think happens is that um, the people who are the board of trustees end up having a massive interest in building out bigger and bigger endowments. Hmm. Why is that the case? I don't know. I'll be interested to find out. I think I have read that Harvard has something like at least a billion dollar endowment. And I have to admit, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering, what is that for? Um you would think that some of that money could go toward tuition relief or maybe paying professors more or, well, who knows? Maybe it could go for something other than just sitting there in investments. What else are the schools doing? The schools, I mean, you know, have been doing things that are completely unconscionable, in my view, one of which is fixing prices on financial aid. Um, there was a lawsuit in 2022, it's going through courts now, where 17 elite colleges were alleged to be fixing prices on financial aid. There was a similar, very, very similar lawsuit in the 1990s where the eight Ivy League schools and MIT were, be, were found to be fixing prices on financial aid. Um, why would a school with billions in endowment choose to do that if they're not trying to maximize some sort of profit? And the profit that they're trying to maximize is the total size of their endowments. And for those who don't know, the endowments is just like a fancy word for the amount of savings they have um, deployed in the bank, in in funds like hedge funds or private equity funds or mutual funds. Um, and so all of the people who manage that money 
they're the ones who are ultimately benefiting from, you know, this, this really weird structure that we've set up. Um, the second thing I would say, the, the second thing that I think is interesting is uh, why do schools sort of try to monopolize and include in this way? Um, I think a lot of it is uh, they don't know that they're doing it sometimes. Um, you know, and this might seem kind of, this might seem kind of weird. Like, how could you not know if you're engaging in predatory behavior? Um, I, I think from like a school's point of view, and I've tried to put myself in, in their shoes, the shoes of a board of trustees at one of these universities. Okay. Uh, applications are up every single year at a place like Harvard or Georgetown or Columbia. The price keeps going up, but more and more people keep applying. The applicants get more impressive every single year. So if I'm sitting in their shoes, I mean, why wouldn't I think everything's going great? You know, so, yeah, I mean, really, why, why wouldn't I think that there, there's no, there's no countervailing force in our society that's really holding these institutions accountable. So, um, I don't blame them necessarily for just carrying on, um, with this sort of predatory culture. They don't think they're, they, they think it's business normal. They just think this is what the industry standard is. And until people start to pay attention, hold them accountable for these types of practices, nothing's going to change on that front. Well, you, you make a really good point because especially if they're forming a cartel, as you mentioned, you know, if there's like, say, the top eight schools, or the top 16 schools, and they all end up sort of like pricing at the same rate and all the excellent students apply to these schools, um, you know, collusion is basically illegal in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, companies, mm -hmm. gigantic companies are not supposed to get together and fix prices. I mean, people do it all the time because how do you catch people? It's very, very difficult to catch people, especially people with literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. They're very clever about right. this stuff. Um, and you can sort of see where essentially what it becomes is it becomes a monopoly. And then once you have a monopoly, it's like, hey, I'm the only guy selling lifeboat tickets on the Titanic. Like, how much would you pay right. to get on the lifeboat? Well, I would pay my entire net worth. And my, my little dog, I would pay everything. Right. And that's probably what's happening. And of course, mm -hmm. why would you give that up if you're the college? Which is why from time to time, you see aspects of this emerge in the public consciousness. I go to Columbia Law School. Um, Columbia, as, as an undergraduate institution, was lying to U.S. News and World Report for the better part of, I believe, a decade what? about their data in order in order to go from like 18 to number two in, in the U.S. news ranking. Oh. So if you if you think about something like that, what would motivate something like that? You have a fantastic institution here, a billion, you know, multi ten over $10 billion in an endowment, um, a fantastically old history, the history of Hamilton and the founders, and yet um, you've debased yourself in this way. And I think the only way to explain it, again, is this sort of greed motivation that's a little bit perverse, um, and it's, it's incredibly disappointing. Well, I, I feel also too, and this is, this is just a sad commentary on human nature that when you're the, when you're at the top, when you're number two or number three, and then somebody else says, well, no, this year we think you're number 18, you know, number 18 for anybody else would be a big victory. But mm -hmm. if you're slipping from number two to number 18, people are probably wondering what the heck is going on over there. What's wrong with you? Right. That would provide well, a big incentive yeah. to cook the books. 
So you're exactly right. And Colombia is not the only one that's been cooking the books in this way. So, okay. you know, of the ones that have been caught, uh, USC's business school, I believe, uh, was caught doing this. Um, I believe that uh, Claremont McKenna had a similar scandal um, nearly a decade ago. I think uh, Temple University had a, a similar scandal where an administrator was then prosecuted for wire fraud. Um, this is a recurring theme. It's a thematic element because, like I said, I mean, schools, you know, have been getting away with fraud and, and, and predatory practices for so long. They just think this is business as normal. You know, it's almost it's it, it truly it is almost like baked into the culture now and how you report self-report your, your data mm-hmm. to U.S. News World Report. People are juicing in all sorts of ways and the line continues to shift. Right. What's, uh, you know, sort of a gray area today becomes well-established practice tomorrow. And this is why it's gotten worse and worse over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's a really sad thing to see. I mean, you know, this is one of my major critiques of the universities is the dishonesty, both um, to other people, but also to themselves is, is quite staggering. Um, I don't think the schools are being honest with who and what they are anymore. Um, and I think until they start to do that, uh, we're going to be stuck uh, in this time of stagnation. Well, it would really help. And I, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a perspective from inside an English department at a Midwestern university for about 20 years or so. Uh, we sort of have a sales pitch to ourselves that we are doing very, very special and important work. Um, Anytime you're a teacher, there's going to be plenty of other teachers, principals, administrators, uh, department chairs, et cetera, who are going to tell you that teaching is the most important profession. It's the most valuable profession. And then if somebody says, well, what about heart surgeon? That's pretty important. Then people will say in response, yes, but who teaches the heart surgeons? So they kind of have an answer for everything. And the problem with this, I guess, from my standpoint is, the ego then gets pretty sky high. I'm really kind of of the opinion that anybody who is doing almost any job whatsoever, roughly 99% of the the jobs, like if you're the guy picking up the trash, uh, well, who wants all that trash lying all over civilization? You know, we think the environment's important. So I, I, I kind of tend to think every job is deeply valuable. I don't know, except for maybe drug dealer or something like that. You know, practically every job is valuable. Um, but the sales pitch becomes, we're so important, and then I can kind of see where that would lead to, I don't know, some some of these monetary, these money problems that you're kind of mentioning, these, these shady, unethical monetary things. Mm-hmm. And then when they underpay teachers, they say, well, you didn't go into teaching for the money, you know, you went into it for the nobility. So then mm-hmm. it's it's particularly disgusting, I think, to see the people at the top racking up $1 billion endowments at various colleges, while meanwhile, tuition goes through the roof and maybe some faculty is underpaid. I don't feel like I'm underpaid, but but I just wanted to point all of that out. So look, I think there is a lot to what you're saying. Um, so let me start with the with the underpayment um, okay. aspect of, of what you just addressed. Okay. Um, I think, you know, I in writing this book, this wasn't a massive focus for the book because it was more oriented towards students. But it is an area of intellectual interest for me. So I did a lot of research on, um, you know, wh- how exactly uh, does market power work on the labor side at the university? Are professors fairly paid? What's going on here? And, you know, I found pretty compelling evidence that people who want to enter the tenure track, for example, 
um, get squeezed for wages quite significantly, um, where they basically worked crazy hours um, in this publisher parish environment um, and at wages that don't make sense at all in any kind of competitive environment. And the reason is because if you're on the tenure track, you can't, there's no threat of exit. You can't threaten to go to a different employer. Um, you're sort of stuck at the university mm. you're, you're on track for. And so that kind of monopsony power ends up getting abused. Monopsony is just obviously a, a fancy word for a very powerful seller who can squeeze who they're buying from. Yes. And, um, you know, so I've seen very compelling evidence on that. I've seen compelling evidence on, for example, uh, you know, foreign students, grad students who end up teaching undergraduate courses um, who, because of visa restrictions and requirements, can't work anywhere but their university in this sort of teaching role. And so they get squeezed again on wages because, again, they don't have threat of exit. They, they can't say, well, we'll go work somewhere else if you don't pay us correctly. Um, you know, I think that obviously I haven't looked into non-university pay structures as much, and I certainly haven't done enough on outside the elite universities how payments work. But even in those two instances, I think there's a very compelling case to be made that the universities are squeezing wages uh, for people who probably ought to get more. And I think, you know, on the flip side, it's exactly what you said. There's this sort of when you get so underpaid, um, there is this sort of narrative that develops that you're doing it for something more than the money. Um, and, you know, what is that more than the money? Sometimes it's the opportunity to do research, uh, as it is for a lot of people. Sometimes it's for the nobility of the profession, as, as you, I think, correctly pointed out. And that's a very interesting point because, uh, like you said, you know, nobility can very, very easily turn to hubris and hubris into crime. And I think essentially that is the psychological linkage here where, you know, um, you know, if you talk to the trustees, you talk to the presidents of these universities, to the administrators, they truly think um, that what they are doing is some sort of incredibly noble work. And teaching is noble work. But when you take that to the limit, when it goes beyond a place of uh, reasonable appreciation and into a place of arrogance, that's when you end up getting things like price-fixing cartels. Mm. That's where you end up getting things like students a trillion dollars in debt, tuition sky high, um, less socioeconomic diversity on campuses. I mean, this is the natural endpoint of that type of thinking, which is that you can do no wrong. Um, I think everyone ought to have more humility than that. So I completely agree with that characterization. Well. And, you know, it's really kind of easy to trick an 18-year-old, too, because 18-year-old goes off to college, and um, if they say, hey, is this going to lead me toward a job? What's going to be my return on investment? Uh, what type of profit can I expect to make? What type of field can I get into? If they are majoring in something that's, I don't know, for example, not engineering or not a STEM thing, it's very easy for the person to just shift the conversation over to, well, the purpose of college really isn't for you to make a right. lot of money. It's really for you to acquire a wonderful liberal arts education, and it's great for you to enjoy the college experience. And the 18-year-old doesn't even know notice that you didn't answer their question. You just, like, yeah. poo-pooed the question and shifted away from the question into one of the other categories. So that's a really interesting point. You know, I've always thought that uh, you can tell where what areas of the world we know the least about um, when there's a lot of superposition that goes on in argumentations. If you start talking about the liberal arts part of why you should go to school, other people might bring up the ROI for why you should go to school. Um, and, and there's 
truly, you know, I think that, and this is like a cultural thing. I, I don't think this is like on the level of individuals. It is very unclear what we have set up our universities to do. What is it that we're trying to achieve? What is the goal? We're subsidizing uh, the hell out of them. Um, yes. There's a ton of money flowing into the system. But what are we trying to get out of this? Are these research institutions? If so, um, why isn't the research spun off from the teaching aspects? Why aren't people who, who are the best in their fields of research just doing research? If they're not research institutions, are they institutions of learning? If so, why does it cost so much to attend? If so, why aren't more campuses getting bigger? Why aren't more people uh, allowed to enter the very best campuses? Why isn't there more open sourcing of the learning? Okay, so if it's not either of those, then what is it? Some sort of vocational training? If so, why isn't there any like accountability on hard skills learned mm -hmm. for what you're actually going to use in the workplace? Okay, so maybe it's not vocational training. If it's not vocational training, then, then you know, th there's this fallback on this idea that it's training the whole person. At Georgetown, they called it cure personalis, um, cultivating the whole citizen. It's unclear to me whether that's something that these institutions are well set up to do anyway. It's unclear to me that they're set up to do that when the socioeconomic demographics on these campuses are, especially at the elite schools, are disproportionately from the top one, top 20, top 25% of the income brackets. It's unclear to me that that's what they're trying to do when the schools are as exclusive as possible, where they'll take the rich from China and from Europe, but they won't take the poor from Appalachia or from the inner city. It is unclear to me what these institutions are trying to do. And it's exactly what you're saying. There's so much superpositioning, so much shifting, so much, uh, you know, just like just fluidity in, you know, what our goal with these institutions is, they end up being nothing at all when they try to be a little bit of everything. I think that is extremely well said. And, and I don't know if I can add anything to that. That was just absolutely brilliant. Are, are you ready to sort of get into solutions to the problem? Or do we have more to say in terms of, I don't know, for example, antitrust exemptions and things like that? Because uh, it would seem to me like uh, you've, you've done some work on the fact that colleges have successfully diverted the government or the newspapers from making these type of inquiries, which is why it's, it's up to a, kind of a citizen journalist such as yourself. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a little bit disappointing. When I first started to research this book, uh, I came across this case in the 1990s, um, early 1991, 1992, where the Department of Justice Antitrust Division okay. sued, like I mentioned, uh, the eight Ivy League schools and MIT. Uh, the eight Ivy League schools signed a settlement. And there was a headline in the New York Times saying uh, something like, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, uh, schools say they don't price fix, agree not to do it again. <laughs> something, something funny like that. Um, and, uh, but MIT went to court. And as MIT went to court, they first lost at the district level. It got appealed. In the appellate court, uh, the judge made a decision to send it back to the district level for retrial. But in the meantime, uh, the other Ivy League schools had been lobbying Congress. So while this was going on in the judicial branch, these elite colleges were lobbying in the legislative branch. Hmm. Well, that's very clever of them, but it's kind of bothersome 
It strikes me that if we're going to have antitrust legislation so that somebody can't have a monopoly and we're going to have anti-cartel legislation so that people can't act as an oligopoly, then I guess I'm just not smart enough to understand, well, then why do we carve out exceptions for certain industries? If we think this is bad close to 100% of the time, then where do these exceptions come into play? Because you always kind of hear about this. You always kind of hear about how somebody gets an exemption. And in this case, it's the people with the $1 billion, $2 billion endowments. Congress you know, specifically carved this out for them. Um, okay. I expected um, then to see more debate about this type of thing as this antitrust exemption came up for renewal every seven years. I checked the record. I checked all the major news publications. Um, every seven years without fail, this antitrust exemption would get essentially removed. Uh, the question then is, um, was the exemption properly qualified for or not? The fact that there has been an exemption, the fact that none of the mainstream media has sought to cover this is, to me, reveals a complete institutional blind spot. No one is holding the elite colleges in particular accountable. It's not the politicians who either want to get their kids in or went there themselves. It's not wealthy people because it's a system that they're best positioned to gain. Um, and, and it's not, unfortunately, it's not middle class parents at the present moment or, you know, working class people either. Because in many cases, their kids don't actually end up getting into these schools. And so who's going to hold these schools accountable at a time when they get more in subsidies than ever before, at a time when they charge more than ever before, at a time where they've become so powerful that if you summed up their endowments, it's something over $200 billion. And that's what I hope this book can do a little bit more about, you know, speak about things like this price fixing cartel, speak about things like how they collude to restrain seats. Um, one of the you know big stories of elite colleges over the last 30 years is more and more people have applied to these schools in particular. Uh, when you franchise, they do not take because they don't want to expand. And that is essentially what is happening at these schools. Well, I would definitely be in favor of the schools expanding if they are doing such a good job, it would be awesome for them to offer their educational services to lots more people. Let's keep going. Okay. So one of the broad theses of the book is that elite colleges in particular are organized in this collusive cartel, um, which taken together amounts to be a monopoly of the elite college market. One of the ways this market works is that the elite colleges amongst themselves have basically all decided to stagnate the amount of supply in the market. In other words, even though applications keep going up every single year, even though qualified applications continue to go up every single year, um, the elite colleges have decided that they will cap their enrollments um, in such a fashion there's virtually no expansion on these campuses any longer. Whereas after World War II, the schools were growing tremendously. Whereas before World War II, the schools were competing to be the biggest schools in America, referring now to Harvard and Yale. Today, both of those schools have decided that instead of using some of their massive fortunes, $50 billion in the case of Harvard, $44 billion in the case of Yale, 
to build new campuses. They have instead decided to completely stagnate the number of students they will accept and that they will teach. So whereas, you know, with $50 billion, you could build 50 new campuses, each seeded with a billion dollars. Um, instead, what Harvard has decided to do is invest that $50 billion into all sorts of markets. They own art, they own timber, uh, through hedge funds, they own a lot of public equities, through venture funds, they own a lot of startup equity, through private equity funds, they own a lot of real estate. They do everything but education at this point, essentially. Um, and uh, it is unclear to me why that would be the case, but for this cartel explanation, which is that the schools want to create scarcity. It's like OPEC, it's like Pablo Escobar. They <laughs> want their they want their their product to be very much in demand, which it is, and very limited in supply, because that is the thing that allows them to extract all sorts of rents. Um, it's what allows them to essentially blackmail really famous and wealthy people to pay massive development office donations in order to get their kids in. Um, and every year, you know, I think uh, I was looking at something at Dartmouth, something close to 40 or 50 kids a year get in through what is called the development list. Um, and the development list is a fancy way of saying kids whose parents bribe the school. Um, oh. And so it's a very lucrative pipeline essentially. Um, and that's the business that they're in, essentially. I mean, that, that is the business, is squeezing students for more and more money because there is less and less supply relative to an increasing, ever-increasing amount of demand. As the rest of the world develops, everyone has the elite American bug. Everyone wants to go to these very prestigious uh, institutions of higher learning in the United States the elites of India and of Africa and of China, uh, Xi Jinping's daughter went to Harvard. Um, this is who is applying now. And it is crowding out American students because if the schools don't expand, if you keep the pie the same size and divide it amongst more and more of the world, well, then it is the American middle class. It is the American working class that is stands to lose. Um, in its ability to have access to these premier institutions. So that's one of the stories I'm telling, which is why they stagnated seats in this way. The other story I'm telling is about why do they collude on things like early decision? Why do they collude on things like, um, you know, whether or not there is a mandatory requirement to um, buy student housing? I mean, there are all sorts of ways that schools really juice and squeeze the monopoly power that they have through junk fees and through other things um, to really extract as much as possible from students, from, from young kids who in many cases do not have an income at the present moment. And, and so I think it's something that is incredibly pressing, incredibly undercovered, incredibly underreported, and yet incredibly important. Um, and I hope that with this book and with conversations like this, Tim, that we're able to do something even a little bit about raising awareness around this issue because when people start to pay attention, that's when I think things can start to get interesting. Well, this is very scary and just very disconcerting what you're saying because it seems like who isn't squeezed? You know, the students are squeezed, the professors are squeezed. The students feel like I have to get into this elite university and thus they're willing to pay anything. I'm not quite sure what tuition is right now, but, uh, you know, you hear variations from like forty to $80,000 a year, mm -hmm. which is just mm -hmm. enormous. Um, and then 
with the professors, you kind of mentioned that once you're in that tenure pipeline, you can't get out of it. And so they literally can work a person ridiculous amounts of hours for very, very little money so that you can get tenure at the at the end of the train station, so to speak. Um, right. And then, of course, the parents feel squeezed and then the high schools uh, lower down have to really cater to this. They really have to cater to this whole philosophy. And it's just not it's not clear what value is being gained from this, but it does seem like a lot of people are just being hamstrung. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that is that is sort of the narrative arc. And it's incredibly sad. You know, we started this conversation with the discussion of my grandfather coming and seeing Georgetown being so excited. Um, and, you know, I gave two interpretations of that. One was, this is so great. Like, this is, uh, he's so happy that I'm going here because this is everything he wanted for himself. The other interpretation of that is quite sad because he is not surprised by this campus at all. It's everything he always thought it would have been. Um, and, you know, those two stories are actually quite different. And unfortunately, I think they're both true. Um, in too many ways, the schools are still too good for us to give up on them totally. It is still important, I think, for many professions and for many people to have access to these institutions of higher learning. It does meaningfully help with certain careers. On the other hand, they are too stagnant to be achieving the potential that we need them to achieve in order to move our society forward. And both things are true at once. They are both incredibly impressive and incredibly disappointing. They're both institutions of higher learning, honorable places, and dishonorable debased, um, you know, and deviant institutions at this point. And unfortunately, um, I think there has been too little coverage of that second story. Um, and so uh, I think this is one of the reasons they've gotten away with as much as they have. You know, it's, it's funny. It's, people don't even know this, but the higher education lobby spends $80 million in Washington lobbying. Um, it is the second highest lobbyist uh, net spend uh, in all of D.C. Who's, so if you think about, who's first, um, if you don't mind my asking? I, I don't remember now. I think it might be oil and gas, but I'm not okay. 100% sure. But, I'll, I'll bet you 50 uh, bucks it's It might be big pharma. You're actually probably correct. Yeah. You're actually probably correct. But if you think about you know the, the three sectors we just mentioned, it's not August's company to be with uh, big pharma no. and oil and gas. Right. And, in uh, high Washington spending. I mean, it's, it's almost, uh, it reminds me of the story. There's Philip and Alexander, Alexander the Great, and Alexander's a very young boy and he's playing the harp and everyone's crying because he's playing the harp so well. And Philip comes up to him and he says, are you not ashamed? And Alexander says, why? I'm playing so well. And Philip's like, are you not ashamed that you play so well? And what he was trying to say was in all the time that you used to learn how to play the harp so well, you could have been learning how to ride horses and how to lead men and how to conquer the next part of the world. And so, um, you know, I always think something similar can be said about the uh, elite colleges, which is, are you not ashamed that so many people are, are rejected? Are, are you not ashamed that the acceptance rate is so low? Um, because in, you know, and they take it as a point of pride that the acceptance rate is 3%, 2%, 4%, whatever. They put it out in all their promotional materials. To me, it's the exact opposite. Um, you ought to be ashamed of, of what this has become. It's become a racket. Yeah, it just, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Let's get into solutions, if you want, mm-hmm. because broadly speaking, I, I can think of two, and this is very, very, very broadly speaking. The first one would be to reform the institutions. Um, mm-hmm. And then the second one would be to not participate in the institutions and go do something else instead. Um, that's that's super broad. I, I would love to, I, I know you've thought about this, so I would love to yeah. see where you're going to go with the solutions. Sure. So um, cards on the table, my bias is towards the former rather than the latter. I think it's more important to reform the institutions. Um, I think to a certain extent, at this point, it is very difficult to go around them. And I can get into a little bit of why I think that's the case. But in terms of specific reforms, um, you know, one of the things that I think is so broadly, no nonsense, very, very simple, is there just should be way more transparency and regulation over how pricing is done. No more junk fees, no more collusion, no more price fixing. Uh, financial aid offers shouldn't be done in secret, um, person to person. Everything should be online, very, very clear. Mm. Um, you know, and I think it, in some case, if, if we can't enforce the antitrust laws to fix what they're doing, if we can't enforce consumer protection laws to fix what they're doing, then in some cases, I think it is time to start looking into price controls because things have gotten out of control. And if you look at the comparative institutions in places like the UK, so for example, Oxford, LSE, Cambridge, very prestigious schools, probably as prestigious as Harvard or Yale, um, or any of the great American universities, um, those schools have strict price controls in the United Kingdom, um, whereby I think tuition when I applied as an undergrad was something like 12K pounds um, for the whole year, whereas in the United States at Georgetown, I think it was something like 60, 65K. Um, radically different, radically different. Um, and I guess my point would be, you know, given, given these layers of incentives of the money managers who want the bigger endowments of people who aren't paying attention, um, and of the natural institutional bias to mass more and more capital, um, given those incentives and given the cartel market structure that doesn't do anything to temper those incentives, um, I think it is more important than ever that, um, the the universities are more aggressively um, enforced uh, by the government. Um, so that's on collusion and that's on pricing. The second more important thing that I think we have to do, probably the cheapest bang for your buck reform would be if the United States federal government, if the Department of Education bought U.S. News and World Report and turned the rankings criteria inside out. Um, so right now, the simple logic, uh, the simple institutional logic of the U.S. News and World Report is spend as much money as possible on as few students as possible. Um, I think that if the government bought it and completely inverted it, spend the less money uh, for as many students as possible. Mm. Um, and, you know, then also track the outcomes that we want. I think you could overnight start to reshape some of the institutional behavior at the universities. I think it would be a very, very positive thing um, for the world. You could probably get that magazine for $100 million. I'm not holding my breath. The <laughs> Department of Education is going to do it. But uh, it might be something that's even possible for a philanthropy to do. Um, you know, at this point, we're in a world of, uh, of mega, mega, mega billionaires. This might be sort of a bang for your buck reform um, that, that someone could partake in. The other thing that I think is some way more ambitious than that, but I think would be interesting and necessary and also harkens back to what we're talking about, which is, you know, how these campuses have stagnated, 
I think the endowments ought to be broken up. So if you go back to a Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson or okay. Thurman Arnold or Franklin Roosevelt, yeah. um, you know, when, when the trusts got too big, when mm-hmm. they got too powerful, oftentimes they broke them up. So they broke up Standard Oil, they broke up AT&T. And it was always, you know, I think quite positive. After they broke up Standard Oil, the six companies that, that emerged from that, their combined market cap was much higher than Standard Oil. Um, after they broke up AT&T, you know, there was a massive explosion in innovation. We ended up getting the modem. We ended up getting dial-up internet. Um, and then that became the internet revolution. And I don't know if that would have happened, but for the AT&T breakup, or certainly it would have been um, something that had been slowed down significantly. And all of these things, um, I think, point us in one direction, which is if you broke up some of these endowments and use that money to seed new schools, to seed entry into this market, we could have a complete boom in new campus construction, in elite campus construction, in things that we haven't done since, frankly, 1900. So we could completely reimagine what the modern elite university could look like. Um, and I think it's something that's long overdue. You know, you think about the waves of these elite colleges sort of getting established. There was the foundational wave with Harvard, places like William Mary, um, uh, eventually, you know, UVA and, and so on and so forth. Then there was the wave of the robber barons. It was Leland Stanford who built Stanford. It was Cornelius Vanderbilt who built Vanderbilt. Rockefeller built U Chicago. Carnegie Mellon was both Carnegie and Mellon. Um, and essentially, uh, since then, though, all the institutional like building, all the entry into the market has dried up. One of the reasons the schools are able to collude in this way is because there has been no threat that a new, completely from the ground up, from scratch, killer institution will be built to compete with them. And the reason that happens is because now the bar and barrier to entry has gotten so high that you need $10, $15 billion just to get started. Um, and it's just no one is able to commit that amount of capital. And from a philanthropic perspective, if you have that kind of money to give, um, this isn't the best way to spend it. There are much better uses of that capital. Okay, um, and so we've, we've come up with a, a really, really weird system where Rockefeller no longer wants to create U Chicago. Um, no one wants to create the university. Musk, Bezos, none of these people are really seriously looking at it just because of how capital intensive it is. Um, and so I think it is beyond time, beyond time to break up some of these endowments, see new schools, and the amount of competition that will generate will solve a lot of the issues that we're referring to earlier. It will solve some of the wage issues on the monopsony side, the squeezing of professors. Mm-hmm. It will free up a lot of slots, I think, for talented professors to do talented research at a much earlier age. And this is something I think is really important. There's been a lot of stagnation in the kinds of ideas that we've been looking into and developing because the median age keeps getting older and older and older at all of these universities. But when you think about where all the innovative ideas come from, and oftentimes it's people who are quite young, quite early in their careers. It's Einstein at the patent clerk office. It is people who are, you know, too young to know better in many instances who come up with a very contrarian idea that generationally moves society forward. And it's not happening so much at the universities because all the slots have been basically, um, you know, shut. Uh, and so I think that would be something that I personally would be very, very, very excited to see happen. Again, it is very difficult to make something like that happen. Can't be done through through litigation. It can only be done through Congress. So, um, you know, if I were in Congress, this would be, I think, a massive area 
where Congress could unleash a new wave of American innovation by breaking up the university trust. Well, I, I really like the idea. I used to teach American history, and uh, I really do like the idea of breaking up monopolies. I think that's very good. And I think an oligopoly, you know, like a tidy mm-hmm. group that runs the whole show, you know, for people who may not be familiar with that whole idea, um, they essentially function like a monopoly. So why not break yeah. them up? Um, and, you know, in terms of large endowments, I, I never begrudge somebody having a lot of money. That does not really bother me. But I guess on a different level of questioning, I always wonder, well, what do you have all this money for if mm-hmm. you're not going to use it or if you're not going to do something good with it? The, the idea of Harvard investing in a timber company, I think that was one of your examples right. that yeah. you gave. Uh, you know, you just kind of have to wonder, well, what's this for? And if the whole idea is to, well, we're just going to cap enrollment at 3% of the people who actually apply um, meanwhile, you have all these other very, very talented applicants. It, it would just be mm-hmm. nice for them to be able to go someplace wonderful. And, uh, you know, I imagine that there are a lot of wonderful schools among the other 5,031 schools mm-hmm. in the United States. But I suppose if somebody is the equal of somebody who's going to Harvard, but then can't get into Harvard because they're only going to accept 3% of the applicants, uh, they're just rightfully going to feel very, very ripped off. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the idea of busting up monopolies. I don't know what that would look like. Uh, so I, I can't advocate it just yet. Um, putting me in charge would probably be a bad idea because I haven't thought it through very deeply. You know, you had one other solution in there that I really, really liked. And uh, I think it would be very controversial, but it was the transparency idea that mm-hmm. let's just publish every dollar that we spend yeah. and every dollar that we give. And Mm-hmm. How far would you take that? Would every single student have their finances, uh, you know, their their scholarships, et cetera? Would you have all of that posted online so people could compare and contrast? I, I would. I would anonymize the data um, okay. to the to the best of, of one's ability. But I think one of the key issues is this asymmetry problem where students don't know what the student next to them is paying. Um, and in many cases, if they did know, or if schools knew that they would know, there would be a completely different set of prices that were going to be charged. Um, in a lot of instances, people are radically overcharged because schools think, well, you know, we build out this model and we model that this person will or will not negotiate. Um, and you know, I think pause on that for just a second. That's insane. I had never even Mm -hmm. thought about that, but that makes brilliant sense on the part of the Mm -hmm. school. Are you mm-hmm. saying that basically they have psychological models so they could tell, well, this student is more likely to negotiate, but this other student is just going to pay what we say? Yeah, so I don't know if it's psychological, but it certainly is statistical. Um, okay. You know, they correlate it with all sorts of stuff, socioeconomic status, zip code, uh, what high school the person is coming from, other people who have come out of those similar areas, you know, bargaining in the past. I mean... You know, they have some very sophisticated software that they use. Um, in, in other industries, it's called revenue management. In the university system, it's called enrollment management. Mm-hmm. But the software essentially does all of this stuff. It models all of this stuff. How much is it going to cost us in financial aid? What is the least we can dole out? What is the most we can rake in? All of this is happening at the algorithmic level. And so it's exactly what you said. Um, these people are making judgments about who is and who isn't likely to want to negotiate. And so essentially, um, 
I think transparency is the only solution. In a world where you have a very sophisticated repeat player robot with all the data in the world on one side and 18-year-old students filling out a form that gives over to the school all their information about their parents' financial history, um, their financial circumstances. What you're saying just blows my mind. Um, it's bothered me for quite some time just how much of our data is out there in the world. Because, of course, there's going to be all kinds of people who will use it, usually to sell us things. But then there's other cases where maybe people are using the data for not such good purposes. You know, for example, perhaps to create a monopoly. But what are your thoughts? How do we get people to recognize what's happening? So I, the only way, the only way to start to get people to recognize what's happening is through you know, payment transparency. I think that's a very important first step. Gosh, that just begins to make me crazy then that we're filling out these forms and giving them every nook and cranny of our lives, including financial, mm -hmm. um, just simply so that they could, well, I guess, take advantage of us in a negotiation that maybe that's the it, real well, purpose. I mean, I guess, I guess you always that, kind that of is wonder, the whole purpose. yeah, like why, that why is. do they need four five, six pages worth of information about a given person? <laughs> and they, they just accumulate all that data. And why, well, I, I guess that's big data for you, but I didn't really recognize that the universities were doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's uh, kind of funny for me was I was speaking to a friend about this um, at law school and he goes, I never knew so much about my family's finances as when I had to start filling out FAFSA. Because uh, they didn't talk about they didn't talk about personal finances growing up. No. And then he started filling out FAFSA and all of a sudden he he knew everything. And so it tells you something about, you know, how how uh, intrusive these these forms are and how intrusive therefore the universities are, that they wanna know so much about your financial history that in some families, even the kids didn't know. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's just crazy because I, I could easily see an 18-year-old having no idea, does my family have a positive net worth or a negative net worth? Uh, right. You know, can, can my parents sleep at night because we have enough money or are they tossing and turning because we don't? I, I could easily see an 18-year-old not really being aware of that. Then they fill yeah. out all the forms and Harvard will just know every last every last aspect. That's just, mm -hmm. that's just mind-blowing. Um, would, are you comfortable at all speaking about the other broad solution that I mentioned, which is for people to perhaps just opt out? Yes. Yes, I actually system. did. Yeah, I did want to touch on that. Good, um, please do. So, so, you know, it's obviously something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, which is, uh, you know, obviously if, if there are many instances in which the schools are increasingly stagnant, um, increasingly corrupt, uh, why don't people just stop going to the school? There's an issue with that, which is, um, are you familiar with the NATO alphabet? No. Uh, like, okay, so like Alpha, Tango, Foxtrot, oh, like okay. the weird language okay. that pilots use. I've, I've heard that in movies and my brother-in-law's a pilot. Okay, so one of the things I thought was really interesting I read in a book recently was this idea of the NATO alphabet. And okay. so during World War II, when aviation was first taken off, um, in, in, a, in a major, major way, um, you know, they had these really, really loud motors um, on these planes um, and they had really loud engines and there's a lot of wind noise. And so when people and the one pilots were trying to communicate with ground control, uh, ground control had no idea what they were saying. Um, and so what what eventually some researchers at Harvard recognized 
was if you limit the possible range of options that people know to listen for, uh, then even with, with all that background noise, people can make out what the pilots are saying. So it was it was a psychological theory, not a scientific one, but it's one that I think is very very interesting, which is that in a world of noise um, with standardized signals that are quite limited, quite narrow, we can still communicate quite well. Um, but in a world of noise with unstandardized signals that are too likely to blend into the noise, we can't communicate so well. Um, and in a sense, it sort of is a theory of everything for why we have standards in anything. Why do we use inches or feet? Uh, why does the whole world sort of, um, you know, uh, come together around one calendar? Um, all of these things, one 24-hour system with 360 degrees, all of these units of measurement, um, they're all ways to standardize what we're trying to say um, because otherwise there's too much noise. It's too difficult to know. So it, when it comes to the job market, I mean, this is an area where there's a tremendous amount of economic noise. Um, who knows if a candidate is or is not qualified for a job? It's very difficult to tell. Um, and it's also very difficult to compare candidates for a job. So if I had a resume where I said I was the world's best chess player, and let's assume for the sake of argument, it was true. Okay. But I didn't include my university. I didn't include my grades. I didn't include my test scores. I didn't include any of that stuff. And I have no prior work experience. And you're just basing it off of the fact that I'm the world's best chess player. Well, you probably still know I'm quite clever. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to be the world's best chess player. Um, you probably know, you can probably infer some things from that. You probably can infer that I'm quite diligent. You know, you have to work pretty hard to be the world's best chess player. Okay. But now let's say, um, I just tell you that I'm a pretty good chess player. You know, um, you know, I'm probably pretty smart. Again, we're assuming it's true. Um, you know, I'm probably pretty diligent if I'm a pretty good player. Um, but it, doesn't you know if you're not the best i'm not really sure how to compare someone who's quite a good painter with someone who's quite a good chess player again now there's a lot of noise it's very unstandardized um and both of those statements also tell you something about what the other person isn't so if i say i'm the world's best chess player it means you're not right it means you're not so every statement creates noise about everyone else and so, you know, this is a problem where I think there hasn't been enough economic literature. I think probably someone could win a Nobel Prize just trying to measure background noise in labor markets. But, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, um, good idea. But could you say just a little bit more about network effects? Network effects can even keep a pretty inferior product dominant long, long after its time is due. So, like, for example, you know, I think uh, the Facebook interface is pretty bad compared to other social media at this point. Um, and yet billions of people use Facebook every day. Network effects are just too strong. Okay, so I have to admit, network effects, the whole concept, it's kind of new to me, but I think I'm beginning to get a clue that essentially what happens is, is that somebody's going to come along and try to rank a very complex system, and they're going to use that to create standards, and then that's going to cut down on all the noise, because if we have to look at 5,031 colleges, we're probably going to want some sort of ranking, some sort of ratings, at least, well, maybe some people are going to want these rankings and ratings. Um, but it's probably an open question. Maybe somebody don't, maybe some people don't want them at all. But despite my saying that, 
I do know that a lot of people are certainly going to want these standards and they're going to rely on these standards. We've coalesced around these standards uh, and standards inherently uh, create network effects okay. um, because everyone sort of standardize. That's what it means to standard. Uh, you know, everyone standardizes around one set of concepts of ideas. And, you know, universities, unfortunately, have become the standardized signals in our labor market in jobs like consulting and banking, in tech jobs, at Google and Facebook, um, in engineering jobs, at Boeing and Northrop, um, in so many of these sectors, unless you have a bachelor's degree at the very minimum, you can't even get a ticket to an interview. Um, and essentially, the reason that is the case is because employers want to have some sort of standard with which to compare uh, candidates to each other. Um, it's an expensive way to do it, but, um, but it is the one that we have, and the network effects are so strong that if you try not to opt into it, unless you're doing something incredibly creative, like uh, starting your own startup and raising money around that, or going into the creator economy and building out um, you know, YouTube channel or doing something else that goes directly to customers, it is very, very difficult to sustain a living um, in a lot of these types of jobs in these industries um, if you do not go and get a college degree. It's just very difficult to get that first job. It oftentimes does not happen. What do you think then, because the network effect is so powerful and maybe institutions like Harvard set these standards, um, what do you make of, let's say, I don't know, I'm in the bottom 4,000 universities. There's 5,000 universities. What if I'm not, say, in the top 50 or not in the top 100? Mm -hmm. uh, can, can other institutions basically say, listen, we're offering a very good product. Uh, we have excellent professors. We offer an excellent education. Um, come here. You know, this is a wonderful alternative for you. Um, or, or are we so locked into, say, I don't know, the top 25, you know, your Harvard, Yale's, Dartmouths, et cetera. Uh, you know, uh, is everybody else basically con condemned to a second tier or a third tier existence? I, I think that is unfortunately the case because of the nature of these network effects. So, you know, you brought up a very good point. You're saying it's actually quite unstandardized. There's 5,000 different uh -huh. uh, certificates to choose from. Right. It's true. But then the rankings go forward and standardize those 5,000 into one. Um, and that's why I think fundamentally rankings are so important. It's mm -hmm. to solve this noise issue. Right. Um, it is it is to standardize an unstandardized credential. And because there is so much money flowing in the form of subsidies and cheap credit into you know basically funneling people into towards colleges, um, that network has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger over time. And so in many ways, you know, it's the federal government that is to blame for. For a lot of this, I think, you know, a lot of these programs were started with the best of intentions. Um, but we had a weird hybrid system where uh, the schools were sort of um, private actors. They weren't treated as public actors. And yet the state supported them as if the state had actual control over them. And you had this weird hybrid worst of both worlds situation that mm. happened. We didn't have fully privatized schools. We didn't have fully nationalized schools. Um, we had this weird sort of crony capitalist solution, um, and crony capitalism doesn't work. I think if there's one economic system we know for a fact does not work, <laughs> is crony capitalism. Well, I'm 
I would think there's lots of economic systems that don't really work. Sure. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. But in the education market, I mean, in education, and you know, generally people agree that like um, you know, socialized schools are pretty good, like public schools. Uh-huh. Um, I think most people, you know, agree that that is something we should have. Um, I'm not communist or anything. I'm just I'm just saying in right, in, right, in this right. specific context, uh, you know, I think most people agree that that public schools, elementary, middle, high schools, make sense. A lot of people like public universities. Um, I think, you know, there is something to public universities haven't been nearly as bad as the private universities in, in these, in these areas in, in many instances. Um, and so, uh, that's all I'm saying that, uh, in the education market, crony capitalism really does. Well, and what I, what I definitely think that we need to do is just open the whole thing up to a big conversation with just a lot more transparency than we've had in the past. Um, I, I've just noticed in the last year or two, people have really seen a lot of the flaws with the public education system. Earlier in the conversation, we did kind of touch upon how there's always been sort of this battle supposedly between progressive versus traditional, and that's been going on for 100 years, but it doesn't seem like anything really changes. We still just use same the same methods, and then we push people toward college, and then when they get to college, they rack up these big debts, and people just kind of wind up in a bad situation. So that's something that that really kind of bothers me. Yeah, let's let's wrap it up from here. This is I think been an incredibly enlightening conversation. The name of your book is The College Cartel. Um what what are your concluding thoughts? Very very powerful interests have seen most powerful right before their downfall. I was in, in 1911 being through towards the end of the 20th century. I think it was true, certainly, of Kodak or Zoc. Um And uh, I think what ends up actually happening is it's because of how dominant some of these institutions become that they become too abusive over time. And in my telling, that's what's happened with the elite college universities. They're at the zenith of their power now. Um, they have become too abusive. And therefore, I think moment is ripe for normal people, middle class people, working class people, take these issues who has built these fantastic over generations of support, of subsidies, of tax exemptions. And I think it's time the universities became accountable to the American public again. I think that there are so many things that they ought to be doing um, to bring these universities more in line and in alignment with the American public in those ways. Um, whether it is on pricing reform, whether it is on breakups, um, whether it is making this reform, there are a lot of things that the government ought And those are really excited about because I think there is momentum in this fight. People are beginning to recognize that the universities are not their friend. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. These are still amazing, fantastic institutions of higher learning, if they were repurposed to be more in alignment with public, I think there's a lot more progress that could happen in this country. I think that's beautifully said. Um, Sahash, where do people get your book? So my book on Amazon in February, um, they can definitely find it there. It'd be called The College Cartel. Um, alternatively, you can follow me on Twitter, um, and I'll be sure to send you my handle. It's at Hodge Sharda. Um, and I also have put together a little website with a petition, um, for Congress. It's www.breakthecartel.com. 
those are probably the three places you'll find me most easily. Well, this has been awesome and I really appreciate it. And I'll definitely link all of that in the show notes. And um, I, I hope that we can do this again, perhaps in a year and you can give us a status update. I would, I would love to do that, Tim. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I appreciate, I really appreciated your point um, specifically about all the different, compa- you know, competing justifications for college and off flip from the other um, because we don't really know what we want. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you again so much. And I really wish the best of luck to you. And I'll get a copy of your book as soon as it comes out. And I just want to say thank you again one more time. You're a very intelligent man, Sahaj, and I really look forward to exploring your arguments further.